Well, this morning, church, we begin a new adventure in God's Word, an adventure that is for many of us uncharted territory, a part of the Old Testament where few Christian believers have dared to tread. We're beginning this morning a new series in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. I want to tell you, brothers and sisters, I'm excited to be preaching through this, these books because this is a part of the Bible that I have not personally studied in any great detail up to this point in my Christian walk. Like some of you, I've read through these books numerous times in my own personal devotions, but I've never studied or taught them in any depth. And so I'm expecting to grow and to learn from these books as we dig into this important but neglected part of the Bible. And by the way, I did study this morning before I preach. Um, here at Rosedale, it wasn't all that long ago that we were journeying through the book of Daniel. The book of Ezra picks up where Daniel left off in the narrative. One reason why I'd like us to continue on to this next portion of the Old Testament. Uh, our series in Daniel provides an excellent foundation for what we're about to learn. If you're new to our church family or if you need a refresher on that part of the Bible, I'd encourage you to hop onto the church website you can listen to, you can download all of the sermons in the book of Daniel, and that will really help to set the context for Ezra and Nehemiah. We're going to read the first two chapters of Ezra in just a couple minutes. Before we do that, I want to try and set the scene a little bit and introduce you to Ezra, one of the most important but least known figures in the Bible. As many of you probably know, uh, the history of the Old Testament can be divided up into a few major periods as God works sovereignly through human history to accomplish His redemptive purpose and plan. In the book of Genesis, we find the story of the patriarchs where we learn about the fall of humanity into sin, God's selection of a man named Abraham, a family and a nation through which He would bless all other families and nations on earth. And after that comes a period of conquest where God delivers Israel from slavery in Egypt, makes a covenant with Israel at Mount Sinai, brings them safely through the wilderness and into the promised land. Third major period is that of the Judges where we see Israel's failure to obey God's commandments, a dark and depressing period of time where everyone does what is right in their own eyes. And from the judges, we enter into the time of Israel's kings. At first, a united kingdom under David and Solomon, then a divided kingdom with political rivals in the north and in the south. Now, though God did raise up a handful of good and godly kings, the main trajectory of Israel during those years was one of disobedience and failure, eventually leading to the sending of the prophets and God's hand of judgment upon the people. God's judgment came to a head in the year 722 B.C. when the mighty Assyrian army invaded northern Israel, decimated ten of the twelve tribes, killing many of them, enslaving more, destroying the purity of worship through intermarriage and idolatry. It was a stunning act of judgment upon a disobedient nation. And although the southern kingdom continued to survive and to struggle on for another 150 years, they too came under God's judgment in the year 586 B.C., when Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians destroyed Jerusalem, raised the temple to the ground. Certainly one of the most shocking events in Jewish history. We get a good idea of the depth of despair of the exiles in Psalm 137, where we read these mournful words of lament. It says, By the waters of Babylon, there we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. On the willows, there we hung up our lyres, for there our captors required of us songs and our tormentors mirth, saying, Sing to us one of the songs of Zion. How shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? If I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget its skill. Let my tongue stick to the roof of my mouth if I do not remember you, if I do not set Jerusalem above my highest joy. 
The destruction of Jerusalem, the capital city, brought the monarchy of Judah to a bitter end. It ushered in a period of exile. Tens of thousands of Jews were forced against their will to leave the promised land and to resettle in Babylon, east of the Euphrates. Of course, this was the period in which Daniel lived and ministered in the courts of the foreign kings, first in the service of the Babylonians and later on in the service of the Persians. Daniel was an old man by the time that the Persian Empire rose to prominence, understanding that he was witnessing the fulfillment of Bible prophecy, but too old at that point to return to the land that he once knew and loved as a child. And although Daniel may have expected that the end of exile would usher in a new era of messianic blessing, in the second half of Daniel, we learn about uh, what the future would hold for God's covenant people. Years, centuries of suffering, hardship, opposition. That extends into our own day and to the church. It will one day culminate in the full and final triumph of God's kingdom and the triumph of God's Son. The book of Daniel covers a period of approximately 70 years from the exile of Daniel and his friends in the year 605 B.C. to the edict of King Cyrus in the year 538 B.C. And the book of Ezra picks up the baton at that point in time and covers the next major period of Jewish history, the post-exilic era, when the nation of Israel had to make a new start, rising up from the ashes of disobedience and defeat, rebuilding a culture, rebuilding a nation upon the firm foundation of God's law and God's Word. Well, friends, that is a five-minute bird's-eye view of the Old Testament. And of all the historical periods that I've just sketched out for you, the time of restoration after the exile is probably the least well-known in the modern church. Ezra was certainly one of the key spiritual leaders that God raised up for this task of reconstruction, but yet he remains one of the least known figures in the Bible, even less well-known to us than Nehemiah. Over the next few months, church, we're going to study these books together, Ezra and Nehemiah, because originally these books were composed as a single literary unit. It was one larger book that was later on divided into two smaller books. Now, though we can't say for certain who it was that wrote these books, Jewish tradition tells us they were written by Ezra himself, that Ezra was also responsible for writing the books of First and Second Chronicles after the exile. He wrote a large portion of the Old Testament. Tradition identifies Ezra as the author, but it's not until chapter 7 of the book that we actually meet Ezra, a man who's described there as a scribe, one who is skilled in the law of Moses. Ezra, we're told, was from the priestly lineage. He was a Levite who could trace his lineage and his ancestry all the way back to Aaron. He was the chief historian. He was the chief scribe in the period after the exile. And unlike the book of Daniel that covers about 70 years of time, Ezra and Nehemiah covers about twice that, that amount of time, approximately 130 years between the two books. Together, these two books cover the time from the end of the exile in 539 B.C. all the way to the end of Nehemiah's ministry in the year 410 B.C. And of course, then there was 400 years of Silence between the ministry of Nehemiah and the coming of Jesus Christ in the New Testament. Well, that's some background information for you as we approach the new sermon series. And at this point, I want to ask you to open up your Bibles with me and turn to Ezra chapter 1. Ezra 1. We're going to read all of chapter 1. I considered reading chapter 2, but rather than hear me stumble and bumble through 125 names, we're going to skip over the names. But I would encourage you in, in your own time to read through. Those names, that, uh, that uh, list of names is part of God's 
inspired word. It is no less inspired, no less important than any other uh, part of God's word. And so let's read the word of God now. Ezra 1. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all of his kingdom and also put it in writing. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth. He has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may his God be with him. Let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. And let each survivor in whatever place he sojourns be assisted by the men of his place with silver and gold, with goods and with beasts, besides freewill offerings for the house of God that is in Jerusalem. Then rose up the heads of the fathers' houses of Judah and Benjamin and the priests and the Levites everyone whose spirit God had stirred to go, go to rebuild the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem. And all who were about them aided them with vessels of silver, with gold, goods, with beasts, and costly wares, beside all that was freely offered. Cyrus the king also brought out the vessels of the house of the Lord that Nebuchadnezzar had carried away from Jerusalem and placed in the house of his gods. Cyrus, king of Persia, brought these out in the charge of of Mithridath, the treasurer who counted them, to Sheshbazar, the prince of Judah. And this was the number of them. Thirty basins of gold, one thousand basins of silver, twenty-nine censers, thirty bowls of gold, four hundred and ten bowls of silver, one thousand other vessels. All the vessels of gold and silver were fifty-four hundred. All these did Sheshbazar bring up when the exiles were brought up from Babylonia to Jerusalem. Now these were the people of the province who came up out of captivity of the exiles whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried captive to Babylonia. They returned to Jerusalem and Judah, each to his own town. They came with Zerubbabel, Joshua, Nehemiah, Sariah, Reliah, Mordecai, Bilshan, Mizpar, Bigvi, Rehum, and Banna. And then what follows is a listing of all the different people, first of all, uh, by family name and then uh, by uh, geographic location. We have a listing of the, Le of the Le Levitical priests. We have a listing of temple servants, uh, the sons of Solomon's servants. And then we pick up in uh, verse 64. The whole assembly together was 42,360 beside their male and female servants of whom there were 7,337. They had 200 male and female singers. Their horses were 736. Their mules were 245. Their camels were 435. Their donkeys were 6,720. Some of the heads of families, when they came to the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem, made freewill offerings to the house of God to erect it on its site. According to their ability, they gave to the treasury of the work 61,000 derricks of gold, 5,000 minas of silver, and 100 priest garments. Now the priests, the Levites, some of the people, the singers, the gatekeepers, the temple servants lived in their towns, and all the rest of Israel lived in their town. This is the word of the Lord. 
Back in the year 2005, the United States experienced one of the worst disasters in our national history as Katrina, a Category 5 hurricane, devastated the southern coastal region, in particular the city of New Orleans, where the levees broke and catastrophic flooding resulted. When all was said and done, 80% of New Orleans was submerged in water. 800,000 people were displaced from their homes. 1,000 people from the city were killed. Damage was estimated at a whopping $125 billion. It took years for the city of New Orleans to recover and rebuild. I remember meeting one of the city's exiles when I was living and studying in Chicago, a PhD student from the Baptist Seminary in New Orleans who was forced to finish his degree at Trinity. The devastation that was caused by Hurricane Katrina won't soon be forgotten in a similar but far more profound way. The immense devastation that was caused by King Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians is forever impressed upon Jewish memory. The Babylonian exile was far and away one of the lowest points in Jewish history. An unspeakable disaster upon the nation. Not merely to see David's royal city destroyed by foreigners. Not merely to see the Davidic king humiliated by his enemies. But to see the very temple of God looted of its treasure and then burned to the ground. The Ark of the Covenant was stolen and it is never mentioned in the Scripture again. Probably destroyed by the Babylonians. Little wonder that the exiles who witnessed these events hung up their harps and refused to sing the songs of the Lord. It must have seemed to them that the world itself had come to an end. Nevertheless, life for the Jewish people went on in Babylon. And the prophet Jeremiah wrote to the discouraged, disheartened exiles to encourage them in the Lord. Build houses and live in them, he said. Plant gardens, eat their produce. Take wives, have sons and daughters. Take wives for your son and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. But seek the welfare of the city where I've sent you into exile. Pray to the Lord on its behalf for in its welfare you will find your welfare. Jeremiah wrote a letter to encourage the exiles. He also predicted that the time in Babylon would not last forever. It would last for 70 years, after which the Israelites would be permitted to return back to the promised land and to rebuild the fallen temple. Now, Jeremiah's prophecies of restoration are mentioned in verse 1 of our text. You can read them for yourself in Jeremiah 25.11 and Jeremiah 29, verse 10. Here's what we read in Jeremiah 29, 10 and 11. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. And here comes the famous verse that many people have memorized. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil to give you a future and a hope. That was a promise given to the exiles by the the prophet Jeremiah. Through Jeremiah, God had promised the people that the exile was not going to be a permanent situation. You may remember that even Daniel was familiar with these prophecies, and Daniel was looking forward to their fulfillment. Nevertheless, the historical events that brought the exile to an end are full of surprises, unexpected twists and turns. And this morning as we introduce this new series and work our way through the first two chapters of Ezra, I want to highlight two of the surprises, one of them having to do with King Cyrus and the royal edict, and then a second surprise having to do with the exiles and their willingness to return. And so for the rest of our time together this morning, we're going to tease out a few of these unexpected twists and turns which led in the providence of God to the rebirth of a nation. 
Well, the first surprise here in our text has to do with the Persian king himself. We read about it in the first few verses of chapter 1. Chapter 1, verse 1. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may his God be with him. Let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. And let each survivor in whatever place he sojourns be assisted by the men of his place with silver and gold, with goods and beasts, besides freewill offerings for the house of God that is in Jerusalem. Now back in our series through the book of Daniel, we met this Persian king named Cyrus, although in the book of Daniel he's, he's called by a different name. He's called by his throne name, which is Darius the Mede. But I believe that they're the same person. Darius the Mede in the book of Daniel is King Cyrus of Persia. And it was the same man, King Cyrus, and his army who stealthily crept into Babylon on that fateful night when Belshazzar was foolishly throwing a party with the enemy standing at the gate. In Daniel 5, we learn that the hand of the Lord suddenly appeared in the banquet hall and that God wrote a message of judgment on the wall to the king and his guests, Mene, Mene, Teko, Parson. Your days are numbered. You have been weighed and found wanting. And the kingdom is given to the Persians. And indeed, it was Cyrus who conquered the Babylonians that night. It was King Cyrus who decided to keep Daniel in his royal service. It was King Cyrus who witnessed the supernatural deliverance of Daniel from the lion's den. Before issuing this royal edict to allow the Israelites to return to Judah, King Cyrus had already become acquainted with the prophet Daniel. Perhaps he'd even had the opportunity to read the prophetic portion of God's word which speak about the return from exile. And what's certainly one of the most remarkable prophecies in the Bible, Isaiah mentions King Cyrus by name decades before anyone knew who he was. This is an amazing, amazing prophecy in the book of Isaiah. Isaiah 44 says, I am the Lord who says to Cyrus, mentions his name, he is my shepherd and he will fulfill all my purpose, saying of Jerusalem, she shall be built and of the temple, your foundation shall be laid. Isaiah prophesying all of this before the city was even destroyed. This is amazing, friends. Long before Cyrus was born, Isaiah predicted that God would raise up this king to rebuild the ruined city, to reconstruct the fallen temple. It's a remarkable testimony to the accuracy and inspiration of the Word of God. Writing way back in the first century A.D., the Jewish historian Josephus claimed in his history of the Jews that Daniel the prophet showed that verse to King Cyrus, and that Cyrus was thus encouraged to fulfill the prophecy and to obey the word of the Lord. Now, whether Josephus' story is is history or myth, only God really knows. But however it happened, whatever circumstances God used in the life of this man, it's astounding to read the edict in verses 1 and 2 of the text. This is the first surprise in the book of Ezra. The most powerful ruler in the world of that day reversing the policies of Nebuchadnezzar, allowing the Jewish exiles to return back to their own land. It is an unexpected turn of events to say the least, and especially at this time in history when the Jews have no political power, they have no reason to be the recipients of Persian mercy. 
You know, friends, for years, critics of the Bible looked at this story of Cyrus's edict and they concluded that this was historically impossible. That this was something that could never happen in real life. The scholars used to ridicule this story as a piece of religious fiction. That is, until the archaeologists working in the late 19th century uncovered a stone cylinder that you can still see at the British Museum. A few years ago, when Leslie and I visited London, we went to see this and I took a picture of this. The Cyrus Cylinder, as it's commonly known, gives insight into the political and religious worldview of Cyrus and the Persian Empire. And unlike the Babylonians who liked to subdue their enemies, who liked to humiliate the foreign gods, Cyrus was something of an ecumenical pagan. You see, like most of the other kings who lived in the ancient Near East, Cyrus believed that there were many, many different gods and goddesses. In religious conviction, he was a polytheist. Now, though Cyrus and the Persians worshipped a false god who they called Marduk, this king wanted to get into the good books of all of the other foreign gods. And so instead of destroying uh, foreign temples like Nebuchadnezzar once did, Cyrus instead spent a great deal of money rebuilding the temples that Nebuchadnezzar had had destroyed. And he spent a great deal of money and resources honoring the gods of the nations he had conquered. And so in contrast to the liberal critics who used to doubt the historicity of this narrative, we now have a picture of King Cyrus from the world of archaeology that perfectly aligns with the biblical narrative. An ecumenical king who wanted to appease the gods of his subjects rather than to subdue them. And certainly one of the gods that Cyrus wanted to please was the god who Daniel worshipped. The god who had supernaturally delivered Daniel from the lion's den. In reality, the only god who truly exists. Here in Ezra 1, we're confronted with the pagan ruler using his authority in a way that goes totally contrary to expectation, setting the captives free, giving them the freedom to return to their own land. You know, ultimately, brothers and sisters, the book of Ezra reveals to us why the king took this action. It wasn't because he was a genuine worshiper of Yahweh. It wasn't because deep down inside he was a kind-hearted old soul. No, the ultimate explanation for the king's action is found in the sovereign will of God who stirred up his spirit, who prompted him to take this unexpected action. And if this first surprise isn't enough, there's two more surprises in the chapter related to Cyrus. First of all, in verse 4, we find the king's instruction to the Persian people that they give financial gifts to the exiles as they return to Judah. And this is a passage that ought to call to mind the book of Exodus. Remember the way in which that the Jewish people, when they were leaving Egypt, it says that they plundered the Egyptians, that they were given all kinds of gifts, and that those gifts were were later used to build the tabernacle. But secondly here, we're amazed to discover the king's decision in verses 7 to 11 to give back all of the temple vessels that had been stolen by Nebuchadnezzar at the beginning of the exile and put into the treasury. These are startling developments. They can only be explained by the sovereign stirring of God. You know, friends, when we were studying the book of Daniel last year, I told you many times in that series that God's meticulous sovereignty over all of human history was a unifying theme of the book. And the same thing is true here in the book of Ezra. Right out of the gate, the author of the book is attributing the king's action to the sovereign will of God, the sovereign stirring of the Holy Spirit uh, that took place in this king's heart. 
Brothers and sisters, if you do not have a high view of God's sovereignty, if you do not believe that our God works all things according to the counsel of, of His will, there are many things in the Bible and many things in your life that you will not be able to fully appreciate. Behind the scenes of human history is a meticulously sovereign God who is moving history towards its predetermined goal, using the actions of men to accomplish His sovereign purpose, many times even using wicked men and evil actions to accomplish His good and perfect will. You see this pattern played out many times throughout the Bible as God raises up evil nations to judge His own covenant people and then brings judgment upon those nations for their wickedness. In the story of the exile, God stirred up the Assyrians and later the Babylonians to discipline the covenant people, just as later on He stirred up the Persians to deliver them. Isaiah chapter 10, verse 5, we read these words about God's sovereign purpose and judgment. He says, Ah, Assyria, the rod of my anger, the staff in their hands is my fury. Against a godly nation I send Him. Against the people of my wrath I command Him to take spoil and seize plunder and to tread them down like mire in the streets. By destroying Israel, uh, the Assyrian kingdom thought that they were subduing the Jews. They thought that they were humiliating the God of Israel. In actual fact, they were just tools in God's hands. They were accomplishing the sovereign purpose of God in judgment. And then remarkably, a few verses down the page, Isaiah continues with another prophecy, this time directed towards Assyria. He says, when the Lord had finished all of His work on Mount Zion and on Jerusalem, He will punish the speech of the arrogant heart of the king of Assyria and the boastful look in His eyes. Through the exile, God uses the Assyrians to punish the Israelites, calling them the rod of His anger. And then once they had fulfilled their purpose, God punished them for their own wickedness and rebellion. See, friends, this is the way that God's sovereign hand works in human history. He often uses wicked men. He often uses wicked rulers uh, to accomplish His good and perfect plan. When we come to the New Testament era, we see that the same thing is true of the death of Jesus Christ. In Acts chapter 4, the church is in their prayer meeting and they pray these remarkable words. They say, for truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Brothers and sisters, God not only works through the church to accomplish His predetermined purpose in history, God also uses governments. He also uses kings and rulers. He can use brutal men like Nebuchadnezzar, who He sometimes raises up to bring judgment. He can use benevolent men like Cyrus, who He can sometimes raise up to restore and to bless. This is why in the Bible, in Romans chapter 13, magistrates, civil authorities are referred to as servants of God. It is why Cyrus is called by the prophet Isaiah, God's shepherd. You see, even if our political leaders don't realize it, even if they wickedly rebel against our God, they are merely accomplishing God's purpose, either for blessing or for judgment. John Kelvin once wrote that when God wants to judge a nation, He gives them wicked rulers. I think that's totally in line with biblical truth. Sadly, a truth that seems to be playing out right here in our own nation. As our leaders rebel against the Lord Jesus, as they rebel against the truth of His Word. Either as agents of blessing or as agents of judgment, our civil authorities function as servants of God. This is one reason why we as Christians should be praying for our, our government. 
Whether we like the rulers that God has put in place, whether we don't like them, makes very little difference when it comes to prayer. For in 1 Timothy 2, we are commanded to pray for these men and women and and to pray for the important work that God has given them to do. Paul writes there, First of all, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good and pleasing in the sight of God our Savior. Christians, we ought to be regularly praying for the civil magistrates, interceding on their behalf, asking God to give them wisdom, asking God to regenerate their hearts and to grant them salvation. For in Proverbs 21, verse 1, we're told that the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. And he turns it wherever he will. As Christian men and women, our desire is that God's kingdom come, that God's will be done here on earth as it is in heaven. We desire, or at least we ought to desire, to live in a nation and in a world that reflects the glory and righteousness of our God. And certainly the civil government has a role to play in that purpose, either for blessing or for judgment. But you know, even in those times when we're deeply disappointed and discouraged by the evil actions of our leaders, we should never despair. We should never lose hope, for God is still sovereign over all of these things. And ultimately, His truth and His gospel will prevail. The earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of God as the waters cover the sea. Let us remember, church, in whatever circumstances we find ourselves, God is faithful to keep His word. Not one of God's promises will ever fall to the ground. Well, the first surprise in our text centers on the king and the royal edict, but there are more surprises in the text that have to do with the people of Israel and their response. Have another look at verse 5 of chapter 1. It says, Then rose up the heads of the fathers' houses in Judah and Benjamin, and the priests and the Levites, everyone who the Spirit of God had stirred to go up to rebuild the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem. You'll notice that two separate times here in this first chapter, we read about God's sovereign stirring. First of all, in the heart of the Persian king. Secondly, in the heart of the Jewish remnant. The sovereign work of God's Spirit that is directing the course of human history and preparing the way for Christ and His kingdom to come. When the exile first occurred in 586 B.C., many of the Jewish people could not imagine what life would be outside of the promised land, living among the Gentiles, living far away from the temple of God. But as the years, as the decades passed by, as their lives were reestablished in Babylon, most of the older generation got old and died. Most of the younger generation probably couldn't imagine life anywhere else. Babylon, after all, was all that they knew. And life back in the promised land was by that point in time a fading memory. For some of them that were born there, it was only only the memory of stories that they'd heard from their parents and their grandparents. Now to a certain degree, I think that most of us here in the room today can relate to the exiles. For most of us here this morning are descended from immigrants who came to this country looking for a new way of life. Most of us are the children or the grandchildren or the great-grandchildren of immigrants, but yet we identify with this country called Canada. We now consider it to be our home and native land. And so just imagine for a moment with me what it would be like if someone told you this afternoon that it was time to sell your house, that it was time to quit your job, that it was time to leave your property, and to go back to Scotland, and to go back to Hungary, 
to go back to the Netherlands. For those of us who have grown up here, who put down our roots here, we might want to go on vacation to those places, but there is little desire to permanently return to the lands of our forebears. We don't want to go permanently to places that are unfamiliar with different customs, with different languages, with different styles of government. As we read these opening chapters in the book of Ezra, we've got to try and put ourselves in the shoes of the Jewish exiles to imagine what it would be like for this 70-year ordeal in Babylon to come to an end. What would it be like for a generation born in exile, born and raised in Babylon, to leave everything they knew and to go back to a place that was totally unfamiliar? Not only that, a place that was nothing but a heap of ruins. Little wonder that this return to Israel required a sovereign stirring of the Lord. Little wonder that such a small minority of the Jewish exiles decided to take advantage of their freedom. Only 42,000 returning, as we learn in chapter 2, verse 64. That's a small number of people compared to the total population. 42,000 people, that's less people than live here in the city of Welland. But when you consider what these people were leaving behind, and when you consider what they were returning to, it's surprising that anyone was willing to go. Seventy years had come and gone. Still the city of Jerusalem was just a shadow of its former glory. The walls were broken. The temple was destroyed. The people were scattered all over the place. The land was re-inhabited by pagans. Going back into that city, going back into that country, would mean starting over again. It would mean facing opposition. I think it probably would be a bit like the Puritans and the pilgrims who left the familiar shores of Europe to start a new life in the untamed wilderness of North America. From a strictly worldly, material perspective, there was a great deal for these exiles to lose and very little for them to gain. And no doubt that worldly perspective is why most of them decided to stay exactly where they, are, they were. To stay in the land of Babylon. They were happy with their new lives. They had settled into a new way of life. Perhaps after 70 years, the temple and the law of God didn't seem quite as important as it once did. During the 70-year exile, a spirit of worldliness and lukewarmness descended upon the Israelites, and this is why a sovereign stirring of God's Spirit was needed. Now, as we're going to learn in the weeks to come, the return from exile occurred in three different stages that were spread out over the course of several decades. In Ezra chapters 1 to 6, we read about the first wave of return as 42,000 people are led out of Babylon by a Persian governor named Sheshbazar and by a Jewish governor named Zerubbabel. We don't know a whole lot about this man named Sheshbazar who's mentioned near the end of chapter 1. Far more significant from a theological point of view is Zerubbabel, the Jewish governor who is introduced to us at the beginning of chapter 2 right alongside of Joshua the priest. Those were the two primary leaders that God chose to lead the first wave of return, one of them providing leadership in the sphere of the state, and the other one providing leadership in, in the sphere of temple worship. So even in the Old Testament, friends, there is a distinction between church and state. I don't know if you realize that. That's not a new distinction. That's an Old Testament distinction. What's interesting here, what's significant here, is that Zerubbabel, the governor, is a direct descendant of King David. He's a grandson of King Jehoiachin. 
And thus we see here in Zerubbabel God's ongoing faithfulness to his covenant with David. David, that promise back in 2 Samuel chapter 7 that God would establish David's throne forever and ultimately bring the Messiah through the Davidic line. And so, friends, underline the name Zerubbabel. It's one of the most important names in chapter 2. And it's no coincidence that that name reappears in the genealogy of the Lord Jesus Christ in Matthew chapter 1. In chapters 1 to 6, we have the first wave of return under Zerubbabel. In chapters 7 to 10, we have the second wave, which took place 80 years later under the leadership of Ezra the priest. There is 80 years of history that occur between Ezra 1 and Ezra 7, a great deal of time that elapsed between the first and second wave of return. And then the third and the final wave of return was led by this man, Nehemiah, a man who served two separate terms as the governor of Judah and who helped rebuild the broken walls of Jerusalem. By the way, the Nehemiah who is mentioned at the beginning of Ezra 2 is not the same Nehemiah that we're, we're going to meet later on. The same with Mordecai. You might think that Mordecai is the same one as in the book of Esther. Not so. The events of Esther happen a little bit later on. And so, friends, three times over the course of a century, God had to stir up his people to return back to the land. And in chapter 2 of Ezra, we have a detailed list of names, men and women, who obeyed the Lord at the very beginning. I think for many of us, genealogies and lists of names in the Bible can seem very, very dry and very boring. But chapter 2 of Ezra is really a monument to the courage and the faithfulness of the exiles. These men and women who left the comforts and conveniences of Babylon to reconstruct a fallen nation and a broken culture. A few years ago on summer vacation, our family visited Washington, D.C. One of the monuments that we saw on that vacation was the memorial to the veterans of Vietnam. It's really quite an impressive monument. Thousands upon thousands and thousands of names of men and women who gave their lives in that terrible war. And reading the individual names on that monument might seem very dry or boring until you appreciate what those names represent. I think that's a helpful way to think about chapter 2. This is a memorial to the courageous and godly people of Israel who are willing to make great sacrifices for the sake of God's glory. What's clear here in the first two chapters of Ezra is that the primary motivation of these people was their love for the Lord. They had a deep concern to rebuild the ruined temple, a deep concern to restore the true worship of God. They were not going back to Israel because it was the easy thing to do. Quite to the contrary. They were going back to Israel because it was the right thing to do. Because it was the godly thing to do. Because doing it was obedient to God. That's why they did it. You see, friends, for a true believer, it is unacceptable to see God's temple lying in ruins and to do nothing about it. That was true back then in ancient Israel. I would venture to say it is still true today in a culture and a society like ours that is lying in ruins and tatters. The worship of our God neglected. The name of our God blasphemed. The moral law of our God transgressed. The church of our God given over to apostasy. And as those men and women who have been regenerated by the Holy Spirit, stirred up by the Spirit of God, it ought to deeply grieve our hearts to see the holy name of our God dishonored, to see the truth of our God profaned in this country, to see the gospel of our God neglected. 
A broken down, destroyed temple causes spiritual grief. And godly grief ought to drive the people of God to concrete, courageous action. Not only in that generation, but in every generation. To be the men and women that God has called us to be. To do the courageous deeds that God has called us to do for the glory of His name and for the good of the nations. The solution in a culture like ours that is now sold out to depravity and sin is not for the people of God to retreat into a holy huddle. It is not for the people of God to live comfortable lives out in Babylon. God's call for His covenant people in every generation is never to retreat and cower, but to advance. To go, as the Great Commission tells us, to make disciples of the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you. In our culture, the walls are broken down. The temple of God is profaned. If we are not deeply concerned about these things, if we are not deeply motivated to do something about it, there is something terribly wrong with our Christianity. May God stir us up by the Spirit today as He did to the Israelites back then working in us, His people, both to will and to do the things that are pleasing to Christ and useful for His kingdom. The true worship of God was the primary motive of the exiles. When we carefully examine the list of names there in chapter 2, we discover that these people were willing to walk the talk. They were willing to live courageous lives. They were willing to pursue holiness, to give sacrificially to the work of the Lord. And so here's the second main surprise. Men and women who are willing to forsake the comforts and the conveniences of Babylon for the sake of God's kingdom. Men and women who are willing to serve the Lord God out of pure motives. Not for what they can get out of God, but for what they can give for the sake of His kingdom and His glory. In this long list of names here in chapter 2, there's abundant evidence of great commitment and great sacrifice. This is God's people at their very best. Now some of the names you'll notice here are listed according to their family identity, while other names are listed according to their land inheritance. That's an indication that some of the exiles did not have a land inheritance to claim back in the land. It had either been stolen or swindled or lost at some point along the way. Also interesting to note in the list, we not only find Jewish names, we find many, many Gentile names. This list is full of Gentiles, converted pagans who had come under God's covenant. And that is a small foreshadowing of the great ingathering of Gentiles that would later on occur on the day of Pentecost. In this list, we find a disproportionately large group of priests, Levites, who are faithful to God's covenant, who understood their duties according to the law, who wanted to instruct the people in righteousness. We also find in this list another group of Levites who are unable to prove their lineage due to the loss or destruction of family records, but return to the land anyway. Perhaps the most striking thing that stands out in chapter 2 is the incredible spirit of generosity that these people showed. Free will offerings listed at the end of chapter 2 that in today's modern measurements would total three tons of silver, 570 pounds of gold. Remember, these people have nothing. They have nothing. Incredible generosity from people who had very little in terms of worldly goods and possessions. 
What we have here in, Exodus, in Ezra 1 and 2 is nothing short of a new exodus. This is a new beginning for the people of God. But as we know from our vantage point in redemptive history, this is not to be the final or the ultimate exodus. This is merely a step forward in God's unfolding plan of salvation that will lead us eventually towards the cross. That will lead us towards the coming of the true Davidic King, Jesus Christ. An exodus from our slavery to sin. An entrance into God's eternal kingdom of righteousness and peace and joy. What a privilege, what an honor it is, brothers and sisters, to be part of the covenant people of God. Stirred up and regenerated by the Spirit of the living God. Sent out on mission for the glory of God at such a time as this. May the Lord give us a pure and holy passion in this generation for the glory of His name.